0: Ladies and gentlemen, it is your boy, Sam Gilstrap. Once again, that name has a ring to it like a wedding vow. We are back. It is the Ghost Lights Podcast, episode 28, proudly brought to you by the sweet, smoothing taste of water. Why? Because it's hot as balls outside. Mmm. That manly chuckle you heard in the background is Richard Cowden, our guest today. Richard, how are you? I'm well.
1: How are you, Sam? I'm doing very well, good, thank good, you. Good, good, good,
0: Thank you for, for saying yes to this event.
1: Thank you for asking me to say yes to it. Ah, cool. It's great. It's, it's, it's a privilege to be part of this. It's been a really cool thing to listen to. Thank you. Yeah, happy to be here. Well,
0: um, without further ado, I've been busy, but I want to hear about you. Theater, how the fuck did it happen? Well... When did you get into it? Originally? Yeah.
1: Well, okay, so. Um, uh, take us on the deep dive. All right, well, I'll take you on the deep dive. So the deep dive kind of goes like this. as if, When I was a kid, mm-hmm. I used to like to get on the swing set and sing. That was my, that was my jam. So mm-hmm. I would just get on the swing set. When we, I grew up in Brooklyn, and so we had this sort of tire swings the, like to the side of our house. Mm-hmm. And I'd get on there and I'd sing all my favorite songs from Sesame Street when I was like four. Nice. And then we moved to Colorado. Um, we had a swing set in the back and I would just get on that and I remember swinging and, and singing things like the Aqua Velva commercial and stuff back in the 70s it was like, <laughs> there's nothing like an Aqua Velva man like on the swing set <laughs> and so I just, it never occurred to me not to sing and then um, uh, my mother had a, had a falling out with the Catholic church hmm. and so we started going to a different church and they had a youth group that was sort of a singing ensemble and uh, a couple of my friends were in it and their parents actually ran it so I enjoyed that and um, so this is one of two kind of formative experiences the, this one was when it came time to audition for solos for the youth group for our big show mm-hmm. um, the, the mother and father of my friends pulled me aside and um, uh, got me in a room and they said you know um, you, you don't, you can't sing so and I was like nine maybe Mm -hmm. you don't sing very well and so we're going to let our kids have all the solos and we're going to let you stay in the group but just please try to you know just keep it down we don't want to be out of tune and of course these are grown ups and people that I respected you know they were my friends parents and so Mm -hmm. I I assumed that they were probably correct I always thought I could sing but I never really thought about it so Mm -hmm. so I shut up I just didn't you know I didn't sing and um and I didn't sing for years. Mm-hmm. I just, I mean, I, I I quit that little youth group thing. That I just didn't sing. I, just, I, I was so humiliated and, and, and terrified by the whole thing. So then, flash forward to uh, seventh grade year, and I, I was probably thirteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and my my mother would attest to this the fact that I was not the easiest child in the world. Mm-hmm. So um, suffice it to say that one day, among many days, I was invited to stay after school for disciplinary reasons, Come on. right? So one day, I am mean, How'd you get the principal's car on the roof? Yeah, pretty much, yeah, yeah right, yeah. <laughs> this particular one, as a matter of fact, I remember what linked to it. We discovered, that a friend and I discovered that the little, remember those little bowls, those plastic bowls that you get in school that they put brownies in or mm-hmm. peaches or whatever? Yeah. Uh, if we stood around the corner from the, cafe, from the lunch line, we could take a couple of those and bounce them off the wall and then bounce back and maybe hit the lunch ladies. So this is the kind of thing I was up to in seventh grade, right? So I was invited to stay after school for a number of days, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, to think about what I'd done. Mm -hmm. And one day I was getting out of detention and I was walking down the hallway and I heard singing from the cafeteria slash um, gymnasium slash multi-purpose room slash theater. (laughs) This is East Junior High School in Grand Junction, mm-hmm. and, um, and and I stopped outside the door, and there was a sign on the door that said "Auditions today for Your Good Man Charlie Brown," and I heard these just people in there singing, and to this day I don't know what happened. I mean, I don't, I have no idea why I was. I'd never thought about being a show. I'd never expressed any interest. I'd never really gone and seen a lot of shows. Nothing like that. But for some reason that day, I was stranded outside the door, and I heard these people in there, and they were singing, and they said, come on in, anybody can come in, and I walked through the door. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I didn't know anybody in there, I was terrified, but I, for some reason, I felt compelled to go in there, and there was a certain sort of, you know, I'm thinking of like a chorus line, there was a certain guy, I could do that, mm-hmm. I used to It's that. I, like, oh, I could go, I'm going to go do that. And so I did. So I went in there, and, and they gave me a piece of music, and said learn it, and sang it, and I did, and the, and the teacher slash director, his name was Bob Schwartz He was a great guy. He was like, he's like, where have you been? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is great. And so I got cast as Schroeder, wow. the piano playing guy in wow. Good Manchester Underground. And um, I, I just never looked back. It was just weird. So that was 1983. And then I was, uh, I, did, I did a lot of sports, but I was lucky enough at Junction High School to be able to do Track and cross-country and all the other things that I was doing sport-wise, but still be in the plays and musicals, and still do choir and estate mm-hmm. you know, and things like that. So when I got out of college, or got right out of high school, um, I didn't, as I was getting ready to graduate from high school, I had no idea really what I wanted to do. I assumed it was probably joining the army, because everyone in my family had always done some military service. That didn't work out, because I had blown out both of my knees in cross-country and couldn't pass to physical mm-hmm. to get into the army. So um, I was like, well, what? Geez, what am I gonna do? Well, I guess I'll, I guess I'll do some singing kind of stuff. So I, because I didn't have any clue, just mm-hmm. became a music theater major because I was like, well, I do shows. I guess you know people clap and laugh when I do them, so I guess I, I guess I can do that. So I became a music theater major and got my BA in music theater at Mesa State.
0: Was it really just that that people seemed to enjoy this, that that clicked it for you, or is there something about like going to the work or like,
1: no, not at that age. There mm-hmm. was something about like I en- I enjoyed it, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed the, the feedback that I got from it. I you know I, um, I make no bones about that. I, mean, I was very much like oh this is people are laughing and clapping. I mm-hmm. like that. But it also was just I mean even in high school like I didn't have a particular peer group that I necessarily fit in with. I kind of traveled in between worlds. You know, I wasn't, um, I, I eked through high school with like a 3, 4 GPA, you know, but I knew I would have decent test scores, so I could get into college. Mm-hmm. And it really was like, well, I guess I, I like to do this and, and you can do it. So that's what I did. So I wasn't, um, there was any sort of um, like really under, underlying deep passion for the work mm-hmm. didn't come until late. Like That really didn't come until college. Um, And what I discovered was that for me, that was uh, the thing that drew me to the the work itself and really getting into the work as an actor and singer was uh, that it was also teaching me how to focus better. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, because I was, they didn't diagnose people with ADHD in the early 80s, right? Mm -hmm. It's a damn good thing they didn't because I wouldn't. God knows how much rhythm in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Cause I was just always all over the place. And so having something to focus on, whether it was memorization of lines, whether it was just remaining, being present in the scene, whether it was making sure that I had the the you know the G sharp, when I needed the G sharp, mm-hmm. whatever, um, that really taught me to focus. And when I was, by the time I was a senior in college, I was very driven. Mm-hmm. to do the work and and that's also the same time I started directing because um, you know you take directing class and mm-hmm. so um, but I remember when I was uh, in between my junior and senior years of college I was um, playing you know, like you do in college I was playing Don Quixote and Man of the mm-hmm. at the age of 21 because that makes sure it makes yeah, totally. to that makes sense yeah totally anyway you were um, for the part of that age yeah right. yeah I was at a third of the age you are supposed to be but um So, uh, but I remember there was another guy in the show who I would actually grown up watching when he was a student at Mesa. Mm. um, You know, after I got into it in high school, and he was somebody that I really admired. And one day after rehearsal, he came up to me, and he had been working professionally all over the place because he had been long gone. He came back to be guest Mm artist and uh, played Doctor Carrasco in the show. And um, his name is Jamie Gormley. You, Jim, if you're listening, I'm shouting about her. Um, But anyway, uh, uh, Jamie came up after rehearsal one day. He's probably ten years old. He said, you know, I gotta tell you something. He said, you are the most focused actor I've ever worked with in my life. And I thought, I wish my mother could hear that because there was just like, nobody had ever said that about me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this was not something, this was not a moniker that I carried around with me. Yeah. Here comes Rich and all his focus. <laughs> he said no one ever until that point. And I was like, wow, that's, yeah. And, and So um, it was about that time that I discovered the value of just pouring yourself into into the process, mm-hmm. and then it was also that time that I that I discovered directing, and that was uh, that was as big of a of a transformation or transformative moment for me as standing outside the cafeteria, you know, when when they were auditioning for your adventure on the ground. Because as soon as I started directing, everything started to make sense to me because mm-hmm. I realized that oh, I did it. I think like a director. Mm-hmm. And I, because even as an actor, uh, it was always hard for me not to focus, but it was always hard for me to exclude mm-hmm. other parts of the process that an actor doesn't necessarily have any interest in or business thinking about. Mm-hmm. The, the overall concept of the staging, the, how the lighting is going to look, what, I mean, just every, uh, what's the brochure or the poster going to look like? Where do yeah. you every little thing like that. Um, so as soon as I started directing, I realized, oh, this is how my brain works. Mm. I, I see things in a three hundred and sixty degree sphere. I don't I don't I don't see things naturally as an actor. So it's harder for me to, to be a performer um, than it is for me to be a director, which is odd because directing is in, you know in a lot of ways a more complex task. Yeah. Um, just in terms of the number of things you have to do. I'm not saying that the actor role is not complex. My God, it is. Yeah. Um, but, um, so yeah, things that really clicked for me at that point. And then when I was getting finished with my undergrad, it made, I, I knew exactly what I had to do, which was go get my MFA and directing. Mm. And nobody told me that you weren't supposed to necessarily go right out of undergrad into a grad MFA program, so mm. I didn't know better, and um, so I was lucky enough to, to find a mentor that saw something in me and bring me into the, the directing program at Ohio U. And and so that's always made a lot of sense. But you know, it's an interesting thing because I also, these days, a lot of times, people will misinterpret what it means to be a director um, based on what what their experience with directors has been. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the way that my brain works being a director is not about control, it's not about being in charge. And you know, you and I work together on a show, and you know that. it's, it's just about the, the fact that I see things in that way. Mm-hmm. I see things in a very broad way. Um, and I, I like the facilitation of collaboration between people who, are, who can be in a situation where they are in a room that is steeped in respect and trust and good faith and bravery. Mm-hmm. And we can all go in there and do our best work and we can make a lot of mistakes and we can grow and we can do all those kind of things. For me, that's what a director does. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not about being in charge of the show. Of course, ultimately, as a director, you are responsible for everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when I was in grad school and uh, my brother-in-law um, and his family lived about an hour north of Athens, Ohio. And so we called him up and said, Dan, why don't you come down... You know, I'm doing this show, and and, and Dan Dixon, he's a union electrician. Like, right? he's, and he's like, he's like, dude, he's like, I love you, man, but he's like, I don't want to go down and see a play. He's like, that's not my thing. He's like, I don't, I just, I don't want to see a play. And I was like, all right, that's a big, I think that was directed by Gary Glenn Ross at the mm-hmm. time. And I was like, dude, if you're ever gonna come see a play, this is the one to come see. So trust me, you will, as much as you think you don't like the theater, come see this, and I'm telling you, like, you'll mm-hmm. dig this. He's like, oh, I don't know, man. I said, you know, it's a long drive. I said, here's what you're going to do. He said, you're going to come down with your wife, Debbie, and you're going to come, you're gonna stay at our place, crash for the night, and I'm going to pick up your entire bar tab after the show. And he's like, all right, we'll be there on Friday. Done. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. So he was all about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he came down and saw the show, and it's a different story. You know, he, he loved it. He was, he was riveted by it because he didn't realize that the theater could be that. And it was a small theater, it was a black box, right? So it mm-hmm. was a 99-seat house, we did it in the round, those, you know, Moss and Arono and Roma and Link and, and Williamson, they were all there. right there. Yeah. And it was a really good production, with a really strong cast. So he was just blown away by the show. But after the show, we're sitting there, uh, we're getting ready to leave the theater, and um, he comes up to me and he goes, he goes, he goes all right, He's he like, I get it. He said, that was cool, that was cool. He said, I, I don't know, other stuff I've seen, I like, yeah, you've probably seen a lot of High school plays and I get it, I don't want to go see those either. Yeah. He goes, but well, I really he said, that was cool, man, that was cool. And then he stops me and he goes, Now you were the director. I said, Yeah. He goes, So what did you do exactly? Yeah. And I just stopped and I was like, it's the most fundamental question that you could ever ask. Yeah. I didn't know how to answer it. Hmm. Because I've been doing theater for such a long time. It was the you know, and I, here I was in the second year of directing program and then a the guy who's really never seen a play before comes up and says what do you do? Mm-hmm. I didn't have an answer. And I, didn't, and I didn't have an answer until probably about three pitchers of Natty Light in, mm-hmm. and a few games of pool and a few slices of pizza a few hours later and all of a sudden I was like no I've got an answer to this. I said Dan I, I think the best way that I can describe it is that when you walked into the theater tonight every, everything that you saw and everything that you experienced was uh, either put there deliberately by me uh, in collaboration with the people of the show or allowed it to be there by me because i didn't say no mm-hmm. that's what i did and he seemed pretty pretty satisfied with that mm-hmm. and that was 1994 or something like that and i still go with that that's my definition somebody says what do you do as a director I love, see, I, I, do, I love to direct theater for people who hate theater. I love to direct people for theater for people who think that they don't want to go see plays. Mm-hmm. And I, that's my whole thing. And so, when those people ask, you know, a lot of times, uh, if, if I go to, if I bring somebody to a play or a musical that I've directed, they're, this happened actually recently, I directed You're in Town for Colorado State mm-hmm. this spring, and um, we had a, a bunch of people come see the show, and some of them had not seen a play, long time and certainly never seen him play with the director and so my sister's father-in-law they came up from loveland to come see the show and we we're getting ready to walk into the theater and her, her father-in-law hugh goes what are you doing here what, what? i was like well, go see the show he's like you you have to go direct I said, i'm done I said, this is the second week of the run nothing for me to do i'm watching just the same as you are it's like but don't you have to direct the show? I said, I already directed the show. Mm-hmm. And then it's open, and now it's the stage manager's show. And it's the cast, and they're doing the show now. He was just blown away you know, by that kind of thing. So that, I love that. Um, I, I, I love working on shows that they bring people to see them that think they're not going to like it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. It, it's when you can... I
0: guess like when, you, when you take a TV movie mind... And put them into the the environment that a play can only do. When like you have live theater, and you put them basically in the set, even if they are removed by a couple of rows, it's 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 that's the unique. That's when you when you hold that person's attention and that and you captivate them on that level. Like
1: I feel like they never go back. I think you're right. Unless you don't captivate them on that level. Totally. And that's the thing that I think is the the razor's edge that we. You know, upon which we sit, mm-hmm. and you know, unfortunately, it, like I, I, like to go see plays. I like to go see musicals, and people will, come, you know, people that I know that are in them will come up afterwards and, and they go, "Did you like it?" I always say, "Yeah, I liked it," because mm-hmm. sure, I liked it, but I mean, that's a very subjective response. The, the, my students have always learned to say. Not, did you ask, not did you like it, but did it work? Mm-hmm. That's the language that I prefer for. tread in, you know. And so I was like, oh yeah, I really liked it a lot, but it, it didn't work, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever. And I think one of the problems that we have in the theater is that for a great many people, and this, I'm not, for better or for worse, yeah. for a great many people, their initial experiences going to see live theater are negative. Mm for whatever reason. Um, and, and, you know, we, we lament the fact that kids don't grow up seeing a lot of theater. And it's true, they don't see anywhere near enough yeah. to be able to kind of distinguish different genres and whether they something's good or not and what they like and develop their own taste. But the fact is, most kids, um, even in um, even in school districts that are challenged for funding, things like that, most kids grow up and they see some theater, you know, that, that whatever, whether it's some comes to their school, or where they go on a field trip, or something like that. And the, I think one of the problems that we have had is that we haven't, as educators and as parents and as, as theater practitioners, we haven't always contextualized that enough so that they really understand what, what it is that they're seeing, they understand what went into it, they understand some of the process, and then what happens is that a guy like Dan Dixon, my, you know, my brother-in-law, um, he hadn't seen plays, it wasn't that he hadn't seen them. Mm-hmm. But the things that he remembered from having seen them, he didn't like. They didn't speak to him. They weren't relevant to him. You mm-hmm. know? Um, it, and what what also happens is that in the curriculum, you get to a junior high school, and in your lit class or in your English class, what are you doing? Well, you're reading Romeo and Juliet.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Inevitably. Yeah. Right? So you're either reading Romeo and Juliet or Midsummer Night's Dream or something. But usually it's Romeo and Juliet in the state of Colorado. Most of the time it's Romeo and Juliet.
0: And you're just sitting there.
1: And you're sitting there, and you're reading these words that you don't understand. And with all due respect to all the English teachers out there that are doing God's work, Mm -hmm. many times the teacher, that that person, him or herself, does not have a great background in Shakespeare and does not know how to bring it to life, does not know how to provide the context, historical, social, linguistic context that, that can make the Shakespearean experience so incredibly rich. And so you end up sitting in class... Yeah, Romeo and, and and everybody's there's okay. Who wants to read today? Who wants to read today? And there's always some girl who's usually named Nicole who. <laughs> was like, Nicole. Right? Yeah. yeah. And Nicole will say, i So she reads Juliet, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore right, uh Romeo? You know, and then you got then some kid has got this task with with trying to make his way through the Queen Mab speech as mm-hmm. Mercutio, and it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to be there. Nobody gets it. it Nobody understands the language. Even if the teacher understands the language, she, she or he can't necessarily communicate why it's important. Mm-hmm. And so, so these are the the formative experiences that people have with theater. Yeah. And then we kind of wonder why they don't want to go. Well, why would you want yeah. to go if that's you know if that's where you yeah. that's where you started?
0: So if you that's if you only think that it's this stale, wordy. Oppressive kind of thing because when you are in that environment, it's oppressive. Yeah. Especially when you are like, I gotta be here because I gotta get this grade.
1: Yeah, because you are also gonna be assessed on. It, mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And
0: like well, I don't understand any of it. There is no, there is no life being breathed no, into it. It means
1: nothing to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and whereas if you have, as I did, I had a great high school drama teacher, and who also taught English, Jonathan Jones, and he was able to bring those kind of things to life. So when we were reading Romeo and Juliet in class, we were also doing it on the stage, right? right. And um, it's always one of those great battles that we used to fight when I was teaching in Mesa between the English department and the theater department, you know, because there's an English lit Shakespeare course that a lot of our students would go take as an upper-divisional elective, um, where they would sit there and they'd read and study Shakespeare from a literary perspective. The, and the, the you mentioned the theater majors in that class all of oh, them are going crazy right because mm-hmm. they're just sitting there like reading it and taking it apart but not from a dramatic perspective but from a purely literary one and they'd go crazy in there mm-hmm. you know and then we'd get in these like kind of good-natured fights between the departments and they'd be like Shakespeare's literature first and drama second and we'd be like he wouldn't have written it unless it was a play it was meant to be performed and you're killing it by sitting around and reading it and not showing it or doing it yeah. right um, you know but in high school unfortunately so many people are just like I don't ever want anything to do with this mm-hmm. and even if you do Romeo and Juliet then you've got a bunch of poor like sophomores and juniors up there and they don't necessarily know all of what they're saying and it's hard and so it's, it's no wonder why people don't just leap into the seats yeah. um, and you know and, and it's interesting culturally because we have this very clear and present demographic issue that we're always struggling with here in the 21st century which is how do we recruit, attract, convert, sell, and sustain younger audiences to replace the audiences that are getting older and unfortunately leaving us? Right? Mm-hmm. And we really, as, a, as an American theater industry, or as an American theater craft or business, have not yet completely solved that equation. There are companies out there that are absolutely doing it, yeah. but as a, as a whole, We still wonder how we're going to bring in millennials, young families into that audience Mm -hmm. when the folks that have been our sustaining audiences, our season ticket subscribers, who themselves did grow up going to the theater because there wasn't so much noise electronically for them to be distracted by. Those people are leaving. They're dying, they're retiring, they're, you know, whatever. And so we have to figure out a backfill that. And we... The companies that do that, the companies that have figured out how to how to develop those audiences, mm-hmm. have done so because they have made theater that is relevant. They've made, they've made theater that speaks to those audiences. Not speaks down to or speaks up to, but speaks to even more. The companies that are doing that are companies that have understood finally that in the 21st century young audiences, and I consider myself still to be part of look, I'm Gen X. Yeah. Full disclosure, forty uh, 48. Right, so, but Don't I'm, look at day I'm, over twenty five. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Okay. All these photographs are just gonna we gotta touch them touch them up, like,
0: I got Photoshop. Photoshop, we'll perfect.
1: So you know, from Gen X on down, from those of us that kind of grew up with MTV and a lot of different channels and starting and then getting cell phones and we could internet and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. You know, those audiences, we have also, and this is where people get mad at millennials because. Millennials are just so selfish and self-adorable, all this kind of stuff. No, that's not really the case. They, and Gen Xers are are a lot alike. Gen Y, Gen X, Millennial are all alike because what we have wondered is what is in this for us? And not like what do I get out of this, but rather how can I contribute to this? Mm -hmm. And so the idea of going to see things that are just presented to us, like you go sit, be a good boy, go sit in the audience, and we're going to do this show at you Mm -hmm. for three hours, and you're going to like it, and you're going to be enriched by it. That's not necessarily the formula anymore. Mm -hmm. That, instead, we expect, and especially Jetwise and Millennials expect to be able to go in and participate in the process. Mm -hmm. They want the process to be bi-directional instead of Mm unidirectional. They want to, be. and why is this? Well, because a couple of things. One, they're driven really, really strongly by, by social issues and social justice. Mm-hmm. That is not an ideological statement. It's I do not care whether they're left or right. It doesn't matter, i just saying that they are. Yeah. Um, and also, they, they grew up in, a, in an environment where user-generated content is not an outlier, but is the norm. Mm-hmm. These are people who grew up making their own YouTube videos. These are people who grew up making their own music on mm-hmm. their laptops. So the idea of going to see performing arts and having the art just at them mm-hmm. instead of with them is difficult to reconcile, especially when there are so many other things out there that they can go <coughs> see. So the companies that have figured this out are ones that invite the audience to participate mm-hmm. in something that is greater than the sum of the parts of audience and performer. Mm -hmm. rather than is interactive in some way, immersive in some way, and that the audience can get into and say, oh, I'm a part of this. I'm contributing to it. The companies that haven't figured that out are sitting there wondering where their audiences are going as their season ticket holders
0: die. Yeah. How how do we create that? Do we do that by writing these plays in a way now that requires the audience to be more involved, or is it how we stage it, how we set where we seat
1: the audience. I think it's all those things. Mm-hmm. I think there. I don't think there's one way to skin that particular cat, but I think those the ones that you just brought up are good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at a, if you look at a, an immersive theatrical interactive experience like Sleep No More in New York, you know, where you're walking through the spaces and, and wherever you happen to be, you're going to see if you you know you take ten people that go through Sleep No More and and by the time they reconvene when they're done, they have 10 different, completely different versions of what they saw, right? And they contributed to that in some way. So that can be, so in terms of uh, how we set them, in terms of uh, how, and, and yeah, absolutely, how we write them. For me, I, I think the, the most basic thing that I wish uh, was happening more in our particular community mm-hmm. um, is just new work. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are pockets of new work. You know, you've got you've got your Buttonwoods and and people like that who, who do incredible new original works. Yeah. But by and large, you look around the market, and I mean, I get it because I've been a producer. Yeah. So, I mean, I understand the finances of this, and I understand the risk reward proposition. And I understand the need to sell tickets. But at the same time, you look around the market, and we're recycling productions of the same shows mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Well, why do we do that? Well, we do it. There are two reasons. There's a producer reason and then there's an artist reason. The producer reason is because the producer goes, well, they killed it at such and such company with that mm-hmm. last fall. And they probably could have run it for another six weeks, but they had to close. So let's run it for another, let's, let's, let's do the show again and we know we can sell tickets. So that's a producer mindset. Mm-hmm. And then there's the artist mindset also, which, which is completely natural, which I totally understand, which when you go see that show, you're like, oh my God, we could do that so much better right <laughs> so we're, so we're gonna do that show so much better than they did and maybe we are maybe we aren't but we're gonna do that show so you do it so you get productions of shows that, um, that are running and, 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 and so the canon the repertoire kind of recycles itself every mm-hmm. few months and, and then longer term every few years you know when you start to have those things and um, I, I think that the, the most basic thing that companies in our market could do would be to try to integrate new works into their seasons. Mm. Uh, you, you don't necessarily have to be a, a, a company that does nothing but new works, but you know, bringing those new voices to the stage. You know, some of the things that, that like Angela Astle did with uh, you know the Women's Project and things like that. Yeah. New, new, new play development. But there's still this sort of. It's not a. It's not. I wouldn't say that it's a, a sort of stigma against new plays, but there's certainly a. A
0: resistance? Yeah, there's a resistance
1: to doing new work because it's, it's unknown. Yeah. Because it's risky. And well, look at Broadway. I mean, weren't like yeah. half
0: of the Tony-nominated shows or something like that, I, I, forgive me, Tony watching crowd, I don't know the specific numbers, but a lot of these are rehashes of movies we've seen. Or
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, when you have, with all the respect of the people that worked on the show, yeah. uh, and I know some of them, you know, when you've got SpongeBob SquarePants, the musical, winning Tony awards... It's a little strange, sure. right? When you have sure. the, the consistent sort of Disneyfica- Disneyfication of Broadway, um, you know, you want to talk about producer talk, That's there is. I mean, it's going to take on the low side 10 to 20 million dollars to bring a musical to Broadway. Mm-hmm. And that's the low side, right? So you better, you, you know, you want something that you know is going to hit. Yeah. And then you know, we're also rehashing something that's, that's always been a complaint about Broadway. That's always been, you know, these, why is it going to there are, there are times throughout history where there are um, you know there are moments where there are, you have know, years where there isn't quite a bit of new work um, you know like Arthur Miller for a long time when his work was getting regularly produced on Broadway when Arthur would write a new play it would go to Broadway mm-hmm. um, so it was a new play but it was also an Arthur Miller play and yeah. Arthur Miller himself had become an institution of American literature and American culture so um, yeah I don't know it, it never um, you know, in our in our region, all the way up the you know front range, um, it, it, it just it seems to me that there is a great opportunity um, for people in this town to kind of get together and get around, developing new work, developing playwrights, engaging in, in workshopping and those kind of relatively low risk, low cost processes that can, can bring work to the to the stage. Um, and I, that's, that, that's really good, what I am hoping for. Because, you know, I, I'm happy to go out and see my friends in, in their shows. I enjoy doing that. Yeah. But again, I, I don't necessarily need to see another production of Great Gardens. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's okay, but, I mean, it's beautiful work, but, yeah. but we're, every time we do that, we're doing it at the expense of something else, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And um, now it's easy for me to sit here and say that because I don't have a dollar this is easy for me sure. because I'm not, I'm not producing these shows. Right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I know that these days when I go to the theater, most of the time when I really get excited about something, it's because it's new. Mm. because it's something I haven't seen before. It's, it's a voice that I haven't heard before. And the other part of that that's huge that is that tends to be an elephant in the room is that this is also where you get underrepresented voices on stage. Yeah. If, you're, if you're always doing the same stuff. And, and you know, you have companies like um, like Aurora Fox who, and others who have made a real commitment to diverse programming mm-hmm. and you know, bringing people of color and, 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 and different gender identity and LGBTQ things to the stage. And that's so important. I'm glad to see that happening. Um, but still, there are so many people who could write such incredible plays yeah. and musicals um, who either don't mm-hmm. uh, or they don't get a chance. They do, and we never see them. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that, that is one of the things that I've been kind of, I've been facing with, um, or, or looking at in terms of what the, the environment of theater in this community is becoming, and a lot of the time we have this, the, the constant argument of, of authentic casting comes up. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's hard, because you say, as you said, I mean, we have the, a season for theater company that is rehashes, or at least, you know, we did this five years ago, and it was a killer for us five years ago. It's pretty bad. To do it and we're gonna do the we're gonna follow the exact same formula because it works so well the first time and while yes that's probably happening for you and that is it is working for you we are definitely putting up a wall to that other to other voices. And recently I got rejected to an audition because I wasn't authentic for the parts that were available. And I I was happy with that. Like thank you for coming out and telling me that. It was Athena, their project that they're gonna do called Honor Killer. They wanted authentic Pakistani people for that show, and I'm Great. like, fuck yeah, definitely do it. Yeah. I've I've made a career of playing ethnically ambiguous characters, and I've been, <laughs> and I'm totally I'm totally honored by that. I've played the I've I've played Othello, yeah, and I've played Musa in yeah. Bangal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. Really cared about those shows, and I wanted to do right by those men because if I didn't, I felt like I would have an entire community uncomfortable with my performance. Right. And so I'm constantly aware of that. And while this is not the time to talk about how how elevated I am, because oh, I
1: I don't know. I mean, what better time, really? very now.
0: Everyone should listen to how beautiful I am. I'm such a good person. I was very pleased to not get invited to that part because I'm a good person. Anyway, moving right along. So it's nice that they're doing that. There's at least that happening, but it happens on such a small scale. Now it feels like to, there are certain people who would see that as, like, oh, it's an anomaly. Yeah, it's not that's not, not the norm, right? Um, and then there are people who go, like, oh, they're going out of their way to tell the story. Mm-hmm. So, like, look at the effort they're putting in behind being, I don't know the right word, inclusive, maybe. Yeah, sure. You know, like, yeah, and, and to that, I would say, yeah, good, at least somebody's fucking trying. Because it's gotta happen.
1: Yeah, because at the end of the day, that's not gonna, those things don't change overnight. We know that, right? So, directors are sometimes faced with this dilemma. They say, do I cast the less skilled actor who is, in terms of ethnicity, background, whatever, Mm -hmm. um, aligned with the role that was written? Do I cast that person knowing that they're less skilled, or do I cast the person who is more skilled, sometimes significantly more skilled, who we can get away with it. Right? Yeah. So I cast Gilstrap as an Iraqi translator. Yeah. Right? Um, what do I do? Until the balance tips in favor of the former mm-hmm. and and people are willing to say, you know what, this person is exactly right for this role, but maybe has never been on stage before. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe only been on stage a couple of times, or maybe just oh, isn't that good. Now, as a director, I look at this and I, I go, well, that, well, that's a pretty cool challenge. Mm-hmm. yeah. Because I like the part of the process that's also developmental. So, I mean, every time I direct a show, I learn more about directing. Mm-hmm. And every time I'm in a show, I learn more about acting. For some people, the learning curve is much steeper. Yeah. Um, you know, For example, I, I think of Miranda Vargas, who was in Bengal Tiger. Mm-hmm. And Miranda had been in a couple of things. She was in my acting class at Metro, and she was very inexperienced, but she crushed. Her. She killed it. Yeah. And and she, her development, you know, her development over the course of that rehearsal process exceeded any of the rest of y'all's by light years, simply because she started, you know, relatively uh, relatively green yeah. and, and as a neophyte, and then working with an experienced cast brought her along so fast. So to me, I I like that. But it's a it is a it's a sticky wicket because also in that in that case mm-hmm. I didn't have a single person single male of Middle Eastern descent audition for that show. Mm-hmm. Um, so what am I going to do? Well, here's the other thing though. That's a cop out. I fully admit that that's a cop out mm-hmm. because you know going back and go okay well you know what if you if you can. Either reasonably assume that no Middle Eastern men are going to come out for this show, or if no Middle Eastern men do come out for this show, then maybe you don't do the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's something where, you know, if I turn around and then go to Ricky Connors and go, we had no Middle Eastern people come out for the show, so we're just going to cancel. <laughs> Beck Tiger, which we're hanging at the beginning of the season on. Which we've already marketed and spent money on, which we've already bought the rights to, which was a brand new as a regional premiere, so yeah. we just got the actual manuscripts from Reggie yes, Joseph did the show. Mm-hmm. The producer's gonna blow a gasket. Yeah. But these are the conversations that we have to have around that.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I like, to be fair too, is like for somebody who's made, like I said, a, a career off of playing those parts, like I'm thankful for that that opportunity, but every time it goes to the right person, it's for the betterment of not only the show, but the mm-hmm. art. I mean, it was so funny. Like, here's a good example. Like, you see my skin. I did Crippled one And I had a very good friend come up to me, tell me after the show, you're not Irish. <laughs> and I'm like, um, actually, I'm 50% Irish, but the Native American side of me dominates in my, mel- my melatonin. Right, <laughs> That's right, what yeah. you see, right. the long hair, the red skin. like." So from that perspective, like you, I can't even I'm like for some people, I'm not even white enough. But you've got to, yeah, you've got to be able to set up your seasons accordingly, and then do the legwork. If you're and gonna I mean, pick, if you're gonna pick a show like that, well, do the legwork. Absolutely,
1: and and you know two things. If if people, uh, you know, if, if if people of color are not auditioning, if um, you know, if people who are aligned with the roles that were written are not coming out. The bigger question then is why? Mm-hmm. That's the bigger question. Do they feel welcome? And that's a question that I think as a community, but not only in Denver, but I think nationwide, I think generally Western theaters is, is dealing with this. Um, we need to ask, we need to be comfortable in our discomfort asking a question, why do no Middle Eastern men come out for Bengal so what is What is it? What is it? Mm-hmm were there people that saw the audition notice and decided not to mm. or were there people that just would, didn't see it if they if they did you know if if it's a mm. why would they see that and then not and decide not to yeah. there's something that we need to address in that and then b if there were people that just never saw it we need to figure out why they didn't see it that's on us yeah. i mean let's be clear about that and this is one of the things that has gotten me in a little bit of trouble over the years, is that I, I, I'm, I, well, because because I'm, I mean, my skin tone. I'm just as Irish as this. Yeah. As Murphy. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, but I, I've always been um, kind of brazen enough to ask those questions. You know, like why is it that people don't come out? And, for me that kind of goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. When I'm directing a show when I'm producing a show, whatever if I have some semblance of influence over who's going to see the show how we market it who our target audience is, that kind of thing I always want to for me, the whole my whole life in the theater has been opening opening the curtains mm-hmm. so people could see behind me yeah. I found one of the things that always made one of the things that makes me uncomfortable as a person is elitism. Yeah, I don't like exclusivity. I don't like elitism. I don't like gated communities. I, you know that kind. Of, yeah, right. I, that stuff just irks me. I, I am, at my very nature, sort of an egalitarian sort of person. I think that everybody kind of starts. They should start exactly the same. So Absolutely. things like privilege have always bothered me. Mm-hmm. Things like I mean, you know, those kind of things they, they drive me nuts. Um, and so. As a as a person in the theater, especially these days, as a as a middle-aged white guy mm-hmm. in the theater, I have a responsibility to ask those questions and then to also be okay with the answers if they come back in ways that leave me out. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I say, well, why aren't Middle Eastern guys auditioning for this show? Why when we produ- when we d- produced the show mm-hmm. and we reached out, um, Rick and I reached out a lot to communities uh, in the area, the, the Iraqi community, Arabic-speaking people, you know, really to try to get a lot of different people in. Yeah, we get a little bit of success, but not great. Mm-hmm. It, by and large, it was the same people that would come see every show mm-hmm. at the edge, right? Yeah. Um, but that means we have to look at that as, yeah, the show from a very specific production perspective was a success. We sold most of the seats. We had a very successful run. We won some awards, blah, 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 blah. We took a different lot, We did. We did cool things with the show. Yeah, and yet on a larger scale, on a deeper level, was it a success if the show wasn't able to be seen and heard by people that needed to see and hear it? Mm-hmm. Because it would speak more directly to their cultural experience than it would to us, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Um, and in that way, we didn't yeah. succeed because we didn't have, you know. So okay, great. So we go. We keep trying. Mm-hmm. It's
0: yeah we gotta keep trying I think now more so than ever especially after today you wanna keep opening up as many doors as possible when it feels like they're all closing yeah and
1: and you you do you pull back the curtain and for me I I love opening up the process Mm -hmm. I I don't want there to be I mean I I generally start a show maybe we did this with Tiger I generally start a show as a director and say okay first of all there's no such thing as theater magic Mm -hmm. it does not exist it is created. it is enabled, it is empowered. That's where, it, when we make it look magical, and we can believe that there's something that's guiding us that's greater than all of us put together, I'm totally fine with that, but there's no theater magic. No. There's there's Some casts are going to have wonderful chemistry, some are not. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, the best efforts of the director and the producers and casting people and the cast themselves are not standing. But, that said, Still, it's it, the process to me is something that is alienating to a lot of people, and and they find our work to be elitist, mm-hmm. um, and that's one of the things that has always. But um, I, you know, again, I can say this from a relative, sort of outsider's perspective. Nobody's ever gonna hire me again in this town after I do this podcast. But well, you know, the, let's say Rubik's Cube. <laughs> <laughs> it's not at all. No, I yeah. Think- um, no, because what, here's what I think. One of the things that's always bothered me about this particular market, and one of the reasons you don't see me out there right now doing a lot of stuff, is that it, 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 I've always found it very insular. And so when I am doing a show, then there's, there's an enormous amount of, of people in the community, are you going to come see my show? Yeah, I'm going to come see your show. you going to come see my show? I'm going to come see your show. Hey, I saw your show. I loved your show. I saw your show. I, your show. I loved your show. You, you got the same six people directing every show in town over and over and over again. Some people are directing three shows at once. Mm. How they do this, or why they're hired to do this, I have no idea. I have no clue. Um, I have an ethical issue with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they get it done, so whatever. But at the same, so if we're doing all these shows for ourselves, yeah, yeah great, but why are we doing it? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's one of the things that's troubled me for the last eight or 10 years in this market is that a lot of really wonderful people are doing really incredible work and mm-hmm. a lot of companies seem to be sort of doing it for themselves and you look at like you look at theaters that are in neighborhoods filled with underrepresented populations mm-hmm. filled with people of color filled with people with lower socioeconomic um, yeah. achievements they're right there yeah. And yet the only people that are coming to the theater are these people that are doing these other shows on their night off, and it's industry night, and oh, I close there, so swing. And I, just, I, I, I sit there and go, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. It's great to have the, the adulation of one's peers. Yeah. But if if the goal of doing the thing is to maybe get that Henry nomination, then I think we're doing it for the wrong reason. Totally. And I don't think that that's what people are actually yeah. doing. Don't, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I think at the end of the day, it's a lot easier to to share our work amongst ourselves than it is to do the really hard and sometimes ugly uh, work that causes us to become uncomfortable with trying to get that work into the community Mm -hmm. and trying to make our theater spaces places for everyone, where everyone can come and feel comfortable and participate in in something happening. So that, that, to me, that's kind of tricky and that's something that not everyone in, in this market, has solved yet? Yeah, there are a lot of companies that, that have. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so yeah, we I mean, it gets it, at some like for me, theater was very personal when I got into it. Like it, oh man, I finally found something I was good at, and I got I got positive reinforcement for in school. Like right, great, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep doing this, only because it was nice and I was good at it. Mm-hmm. And then somebody challenged me. It's like well, it can't just be because you're. You think you're good at it, and you're gonna get told that you're good at it. There's because, yeah, no, you've got the tools, Sam, but you've got to keep. It's it, if you keep doing it for that, it gets stale, and when it doesn't work in your favor, then you get bitter, mm-hmm. and that's what I've. There's a thing happening on Facebook right now that's kind of, that's permeating, and it seems very, um, shame based, and it because somebody feels hurt. And it's like it's not has nothing to do with you. It, it, you have no idea what the cause of your feeling spurned originated from. Oh, sure. Yeah. But you you're now you're publicly shaming people because you feel hurt, and it's you've made it about yourself. And then the rage that that spurs in other people becomes personal. And so now we're not even talking about the problem. The systematic problem of what you, what this, where it started is coming from. We're talking about our pain and our beliefs and what we think, or should say, what I think, theater should be. And when you start to create that as, I don't know, your foundation of you creating your art, it's going to ring hollow. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to tell a beautiful story that challenges your audience, but you're doing it in a self-aggrandizing Way, it's gonna fall short every time, and then you're gonna be like, "Why didn't we sell out every night?" I weirdly wish more people came and saw it. It's like, well, maybe it's because we didn't do it the right way.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing we we have to give audiences credit, and and they can see right through a lack of authenticity, and that's another thing that I think is really uh, a so huge, huge a huge factor in trying to develop and sustain younger audiences is that they're bullshit detectors. Uh, are very, very highly developed. And um, young you know, young people of color, and young trans people, and young um, young gay and lesbian people, they have grown up in an environment where in a lot of ways the curtain has been pulled back on our society. Mm-hmm. And so they've got a very highly advanced bullshit radar. Mm-hmm. And when we do work that is anything but really authentic, um, they see right through it, and they can go find authentic things other places. They can create them. They can have authentic experiences with other art forms. They don't need us. Oh. Um, we, we need them, right? We need them, and and we do need them we to need, need us, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's you know that's an interesting thing, but it, where the rubber meets the road to me is that you, you go. Um, I. I think that what I what I see, having been away from the Denver market for a few years, and then kind of come back to it, and just looking from sort of the outside in, but one of the things that I see that I would really, really ask people to kind of think about is just broadening the number of voices that are that are heard, you know, and. Um, I don't think that necessarily means that we need more theater companies. Mm. I like think Denver's got a pretty good number of theater companies. We're saturated. Um, and uh, you know, somebody more analytical than I am might look and say we've got too many theater companies. But the market will solve that. We'll figure it out. Um, and different companies have different roles and missions and things. Mm-hmm. I like get that. But within, let's say we didn't. Let's say another theater company in Denver did. So we stated the exact number of producing organizations from Denver Center um, all the way down to the smallest ad hoc organization. It's like, hey, I've got a thousand bucks to do a show. Mm-hmm. And then the, the nonprofits and the LLCs and those kind of things in between. Yeah. Let's say that number remained completely static over the next five years. It would be great if then um, those companies that existed continue to try to figure out ways ways to bring in new people New cast members, new playwrights, new directors. Um, it it is, it, it's disappointing, you know. When, when I, I go away for four years and I come back, and it, I see again, it's just sort of the same mm-hmm. folks, always directing the shows. You know, like yeah. I, I there's there's a story that um, that uh, happened to a friend of mine that's not interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I remember giving uh, giving my directing resume to to one of the theater owners in town. This is probably five years ago or so, um, and not to boast at all, but I, I guarantee my, my directing resume is right there with anybody kind of else's. And so I, I, you know, said, "Hey, I'd love to direct something in, in the next season or whatever." Um, oh yeah, sure. I'll, uh, well, you know, I'll, I'll take a look. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, sort of dismissively, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you look at the, the their upcoming season and the same person was directing like three or four of their six shows mm-hmm. at the same time this person was directing three or four other shows at a time I thought, see now that to me I understand that as a producer when you hire a director you're putting an enormous amount of faith into that person because everything is going to ride on that and you do not want the actors to have that experience don't want to have a bad show you know, Huge cost overruns or mm-hmm. delays or anything like that. But at the same time, as a producer, you need to be able to take the risk to say, you know what? Here's somebody that absolutely, no, this is not me I'm talking about, just in general, somebody that shows up and says, I can, like, I am qualified to do this. Mm-hmm. I have done this at a high level. Bring that person in. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes time to think about. Repertoire material, and you're going to do the Bengal Tiger shows. Then figure out how to get those people in to the audition room. Mm-hmm. Figure out how to cast them. Cast the, the person who's less skilled, but who's right for the part, mm-hmm. over the person who's more skilled. And you know what? Maybe at the end of the day, you the level of your production drops a little bit. Uh, I would argue that it does. But I mean, maybe that that's what you're worried about as the producer and the theater owner maybe it's not quite as good of a show as it would have been had you cast the people that were that you knew mm-hmm. but i tell you what that is not a sustainable model it's not a sustainable model for a company it's not a sustainable model for a community and it's not a sustainable model for an artistic for a cultural environment absolutely it is self-defeating the same people doing the same projects over and over again we make ourselves feel good about but ultimately, if you look at the other three and a half million people within sixty miles of here, they don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. They don't care if you're doing the same shows over and over. They want to see something that you have to have something that speaks to them, that is relevant to yeah. them, challenges them, that delights them, that pisses them off, that brings them in, yeah. that they can participate in.
0: The fund, like your your theater company's fundraising, should be not something that is, like, I guess applauded but excited like it shouldn't just be a vent to glad hand with your with your board members You need to do that to keep them happy But when they see the next season coming up, they want to be excited about it. Absolutely. They want to be that Excitement is something they can sell if we're re, if we're rehashing shows we've done before or similar type shows It's a harder sell.
1: Yeah and, and look I mean you know those kind of fundraising events. By the way, it's like as somebody who studies nonprofits and, and teaches graduate courses in arts management, mm-hmm. those kind of events never make any money. <laughs> they never do. Yeah. They make everybody feel good, but they never make any money because um, mm-hmm. they cost a lot, and people donate twenty five hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, I've been to a million of you them. Know, at the end of the day, you sit there and go, "Wow, we had a really great time, and we made eight hundred dollars." You know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not actually how you get contributed income, but yeah. it does. You have to have those events if you don't think of them as fundraising. Yeah. If you think of them as celebrations of your work and the opportunities to get people in the room, and community building. Like you know, yeah. If you just if it's an even zero sum thing, if you don't make any money off of it, but you don't lose a bunch of money off of it. Great. Do it. You know, especially if you especially if you can invite new people in. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the whole thing. You something like that and say, "Hey, welcome." I remember, like, um, from time to time, I'll go to church. Right. Oh, this is are you I mean, okay? this a shocker. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, whether it'll be, you know, with family members, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we, we don't, perhaps we should, but we don't go to church for you know, a lot of our own as a family. But um, when you go to a church for the first time, there are two kinds of churches. There are the ones who make you feel welcome and the ones who don't. Mm-hmm. And that's, in my experience, as somebody who does not go to the church regularly or ever go to the same church twice. I mean, that's been my experience. And that doesn't have anything to do with denomination. Because I've been to I've been to so many different Catholic masses in so many different kinds of places. There are some churches that say, we're glad you're here. Welcome. Mm-hmm. If you're new, raise your hand and we will reach out to you, right? Yeah, part of that, of course, we just go, "Well, I just want you to keep going to Well, of course they do, yeah. right? But in the same way that we want people to keep coming to the theater.
0: Yeah, well, like, I mean, forgive me, really. The Chris Rock joke, is about drug dealers. It's the same across any business or right. group. We get you on the comeback.
1: Right.
0: How do we get you on the comeback? Is that like we treat you with respect, open arms, we smile at you, keep good prices, huh? good product. Exactly. That's where we're pushing.
1: Right, and that's the same thing, right? Yeah. The theaters are very much the same way. I've been into theaters where I believe, really, as an audience member, if nobody knows me, nobody knows that I'm a theater professional. Nobody knows that I've been teaching you know, theater at university level for twenty years. They have no idea who I am and, uh, and yet I'm made to feel like I'm not welcome. Mm. Like oh well, you know, everybody everybody else seems to know each other and they're sort of like, who is who are they? Mm-hmm. What are they doing here? Yeah, well, well, what the fuck is that? Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, whereas when you go to other theaters, you're usually the really grimy ones that the, everybody's just like the paint is drying when the show opens the rent check barely cashed you know like, like all that stuff and you it, and you walk in and those people are so happy that you're there they're so happy that you're there to see their work i, I remember another this is another one gary gwen ross story in 1995 i started this little theater company in denver called roundfish mm. with a bunch of guys that i had gone to school with and so i got a thousand dollars i got a thousand dollars from um, jim cannon and jim cannon I don't know if he still produces anything, but he has been writing some plays, and I worked with him on a play at Ad Hoc Theater when Ad Hoc was first renovating the church that it now holds. Curious, Ooh. the Acoma Center. Yeah. So this was when all that stuff was starting to happen. the The original kind of we call them off regional theaters. Yeah. There was there was the Denver Center. Then you had like you had our Vada Center, sort of nascently doing some stuff. And then you had the two big dinner theaters in town, and very little else. Mm-hmm. There's some community theaters, but not a lot. We wanted to bring professional level theater to smaller venues, and that's what they did at Ad Hoc, and that's what ultimately Chip started with Curious, and that's what we were doing at Roundfish. And so, our first show was Glenn Gary, and it was some of the same guys that were in the show I talked about earlier that mm-hmm. I'd gone to school with. And so these were all guys that were working all over the country, and a couple were at the National Theater Conservatory, I was like, hey, I got a thousand bucks, and I got a space. Let's do a season. Let's see what happens. And they were like, cool. Couple guys were working at a toy store in Burbank, and so they're like, Yeah, we don't want to work at the toy store. We'll come to Denver and get jobs and we'll start this show. So, we had a matinee show with Glenn Gary. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't know what to expect when we started, the, when we opened the show, we had no clue. So, we had a Saturday matinee our first weekend, right? <laughs> and we're sitting there getting ready for the show, and one guy showed up. Wow, one guy. And here we were. The, Brand new, I mean, this is our opening weekend of the, the thing. We've mm-hmm. done the show twice um, for invited audiences, you know, and like Sonny Brooks-Dillard from the, from the Post. And um, um, yeah, so we, we, we had done the show twice and then we had this matinee named one guy shows up. And so we had this big meeting backstage. where like, it didn't last very long because the question was, I mean, I had to him because I had directed the show and I was producing it. I said, um, do we go on with the show? There's one guy. And every single guy in the show was like, fuck yeah, we go on with the show this will be awesome. Mm-hmm. So we did playing Gary for one guy. <laughs> and he sat there right in the middle of the house mm-hmm. and we did the show and it was a pretty good run mm-hmm. and uh, finished the show and I, was, I wasn't I was in the show because I just directed it so I was kind of hanging back and the show ends uh, where will, where Rumble walks out and says mm-hmm. he'll be at the restaurant yep. and, and Aaron says God I hate this job and lights come down and this guy jumps to his feet And just gives us this enormous standing ovation for like two or three, all the way through curtain call. And he was so incredibly appreciative that we had done that for him, Mm -hmm. for his $12 ticket or whatever. Seven guys did this show for him. And it was awesome. And you better believe that that guy came back to see that show several times and brought other people and he saw every other thing we did. He was, you know, he was, he was, 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 we got him on the comeback because he's like, of course. Of course, they made me feel welcome. They did this just for me. It was so much fun, and he was so happy to do
0: it. It's it's amazing. Just uh, there's a level of kindness in in that. You respect.
1: Well, yeah. It's
0: that's not seen a lot, especially nowadays.
1: Yeah, and you know, it was it was also. (laughs) I'm not gonna lie. There was also a certain. Well, we're already here. Yeah. That's about it, right? And we like we love doing the show. I mean, who doesn't like doing? Gary. So we loved doing the show, but um, but there was there was a thing that this one guy came from you know Highlands Ranch or whatever to mm-hmm. come see the show. So let's do the show for him. Um, you know, in the same way that in Midsummer Night's Dream, the the mechanicals when they have the opportunity to give the gift to the king, what do they give him? A play. Mm-hmm. Right. That's 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 they the most noble thing. That's what they have to offer. Yeah. Um I always go back to that, because that's kind of what I think of what we do. You know, what do we have? Like, what, at me, what do I have? I don't I don't know how to build stuff very well. Um, yeah, Jess would say, no. um, at <laughs> all. I don't know how to fix stuff without making it worse. Yeah. I don't sew, I don't, you know. I don't have a tangible product that I can market, you know. But I do have this. Yeah. I do have this thing that I can give as a gift. I can sing a little bit, I can act a little bit, I can put a show on. Mm-hmm. And I like getting around people that also know how to put on a show. And we do it for that reason, because it's what we have. Yeah. Um, and then I think that helps us do it well, because it, yeah, I think maybe that you would agree with this, that we don't, when, we're, when I'm working on a show with a cast, we don't lose sight of why we're there, and the fact that we're honored we are privileged to be able to do the work, that we have the time that we can build into our schedules to be able to do it. And if, and I think if, if those reasons are always at the center of why it is that we're doing banging our heads against this particular wall, then we we tend to do our best work yeah. in that environment. Yeah.
0: It it's fosters. Yeah. It fosters growth. Um, I'm going to dial, change the subject a little bit. Um, one of my favorite things about just getting to know you and one of the stories that I've kind of carried with you have got this magnetic pull about you. That's just, it, and I, there's, a, there's a Richard Cowden tree that I refer to. Like the Bill uh. Walsh. Like the Bill Walsh coaching tree, there's this Richard Cowden acting and we're at
1: the, the West Coast theater offense. Exactly, exactly.
0: That's right. Slant routes, baby. That's all we're doing. Mm-hmm. Slant routes we s- drops still in our center. Yep. yep We've got that three split back, it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, Carnegie. I think you're my only guess that's ever performed at Carnegie. Oh wow. How singing is just singing, mm-hmm. being a singer as opposed to just being in musicals. Is it different? And if so, how?
1: Um or are you yeah. still performing? Yeah, yeah, it is. A, well, you, you are, and it's it's an interesting thing. So, the, the Carnegie Hall story is an interesting one, because when I... Um, By the way, people yeah. told you you couldn't sing.
0: Yeah. And you stopped singing for a while, and you came back, and then did you invite those people to your Carnegie
1: show? No, I shouldn't. I, should <laughs> I threw it all over Facebook, though. I have friends with the kids whose parents did that to me. But here's the thing. The kids don't know that their parents did that to me. Uh, I never told them. I never told anybody about that until I was grown up. Um, but yeah, so when I started, so I, I went for a long time, when I left college, not singing. Not by design, but because I was directing so much. And so I was directing shows. and If I was in a show, I was, it was just a straight player or whatever. <laughs> so I really wasn't singing at all. Um, and then I got hired to do to, um, to play Jamie Lockhart in the Robert Bright and and came back to singing, and I thought, well, oh, that's right, I, I, I am a singer, I forgot, I forgot about that. Um, and then in the, in the year 2000, in the year 2000, yes, in the year 2000, um, we started a little theater company at Grand Junction called Green Shoe, And um, it was my wife Jess and I, and then another couple that we are really great friends with, and again, we got a space. Mm-hmm. And we put together this little theater company, and the first show that we did was a um, was a Stephen Sondheim review, and um, it was what was it putting it together it was side, by side by side by Sondheim. So we opened our season and our company with Side by Side by Sondheim, which is just a four to the four or five cast show, and you're singing just just Sondheim song after Sondheim song after Sondheim song. And I remember in doing that how much I loved singing and how much I really just completely idolize Stephen Sondheim. Mm-hmm. And about the same time, they had released the DVD of the Sondheim celebration at Carnegie Hall from 1993 or whatever. Um, and I, I remember watching that mm-hmm. with those guys as we were getting ready for the show. And it was another one of those moments, a defining moment for me. It was a defining moment for me as a performer because I was like, okay, as hard as I've worked and as you know as, as focused as I've learned to become, and driven as I learned to become, I can take this to another level. How do I do that? And so I made a, I made a commitment to myself, quietly, but I didn't tell anybody else. And this was in, yeah, in 2000, and I said, every time I step on stage, from now on, in my life, I am going to rehearse and perform as if I were getting ready to, to play Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. And at it, Green it we had this little tiny, you know, again, little tiny space, I think we see a little over 100 people, um, but every time i went on that stage to sing sometimes music in my mind i was singing Carnegie hall yes. so i was singing being alive in my mind at Carnegie hall i was seeing i was singing you know whatever waiting for the girls upstairs at Carnegie hall in my mind right and i just said that is the ethic that i'm going to with which i'm going to approach my work um and that stuck with me i still do that mm-hmm. but then when we moved to new york city in um 2010, um, I had the great opportunity to join Essential Voices USA, which is the resident chorus at Carnegie Hall with the New York Pops. Mm-hmm. And I have to give full shout out to Melody Horton-Hogel for this, because she was living there, and she was in Essential Voices, and she said, you have to come audition. You gotta come audition. I was like, well, you get getting that right, I gotta come audition. Mm-hmm. So I did, and Judith Blurman, who's the director one of the great choral conductors on the planet. Um, you think I'm intense. Um, uh, she liked what she heard, and so I was, so I got in the job. And the first thing that we did at Carnegie Hall was Stephen Sondheim's 80th birthday party. So now, growing up in Brooklyn, New York, we didn't have the money to go to Carnegie Hall. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it I was a I know, like, poor Irish kid from Flatbush. Like, we did not have the money to go to Carnegie Hall. So the first time I ever saw Carnegie Hall was from the stage. Mm. I'd never been in, ever. First time I ever saw it was going through my little sticker said an artist, mm-hmm. yeah, which was pretty cool. Walked in, we got we got together, and we walked out through the through the doors onto the stage, and um, I lost it. Mm. I just completely I, I'm gonna lose it now. I just completely lost it. It was. For me, that moment walking out on stage was the sort of culmination and validation of 30-some-odd years' work. And then to be able to go out there and share the stage with, you know, with Paul Giannani and Judy Korman and Stephen Sondheim himself and Brian stubb Mitchell and Kelly O'Hara. What? Mm -hmm. It was mind-blowing. And the, you know, you have these sort of peak moments in your life, you know, and for me, a lot of those are based around things more like family, like birth of children and, and stuff like that. Yeah. But there's, there's one highlight, there's one 10 second moment that I can slice out and just hold up as like, this is why I did this as a performer. It was the last four measures of Jason Robert Brown's arrangement of Sunday from Sunday in the Park with George um where all and Stephen Sondheim does not write much choral music he doesn't he really does very little choral orchestration and and voicing in his in his work and it's one of it's Sunday is probably his biggest choral number and it just ends on this incredible G chord and I was singing baritone um which put me at a B, Mm -hmm. and so that note on the last, someday, just right, I, like, it it was Mm transcendent, Like everything, the universe deconstructed and constructed all, like a million times over, I never, it was the most perfect tone that ever came out of my face as I was singing with these hundred other people looking over Uh, at Stephen Reinecke, the conductor of the New York Pops, conducting us, looking at Stephen Sondheim in the front row, looking at Stokes, looking at uh, everything, looking out at Carnegie Hall, hearing Mm -hmm. what it sounds like when you are singing in Carnegie Hall from the stage. It it, it was just completely Mm mind-blowing. And then there's a trumpet that happens at the very end. (laughs) It's an inverted six mm-hmm. that's the last thing and that just that note just goes out there it's like a call and then a millisecond of silence and then you just hear it is the finale of the yeah. night and i to this day if you play me 25 different recordings of applause in theaters i can tell you which one is coming. Kind of Mm-hmm. The sound of the applause in Carnegie Hall from the stage is unlike any other place on the planet. Yeah. So, yeah, the, I. But I, in that moment, it was just. It wasn't just about look at me. I'm in Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. It, was not, it was actually just a a, a whole career's worth of, of, gratefulness. Just how did I get here? And how many people? You know, i uh, get all emotional again. My family was up in the balcony. Mm-hmm. You know, my kids were there. My wife was there. My mom was there. You know, and, and just all those people that over the years have put up with my shit, mm-hmm. and then how proud they were. That, you know, how like how proud little Liam was at the time. He was four, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, something like that. And how he has a tie on and like that. And I'm so <laughs> proud of his dad, you know, because he didn't know about Carnegie Hall, but I didn't get to go to Carnegie Hall when I was four. Mm-hmm. And so here's Leo and Harper and Molly, getting to go to Carnegie Hall and watching their dancing on that stage with Steven Sondheim, doesn't get any better than that, brother.
0: hmm hmm When we get to this part of the podcast, and thank you so much for sharing that story with us, um, I always ask, what is the one piece of advice you wish you had gotten when you started? Um, what's your ghost light for the next group of people coming up?
1: Um, yeah. It, well, first of all... It, Number one, and most importantly, become an accountant. <laughs> mm. Become an right. accountant. Yeah. Do some, yeah. Get a job. <laughs> to, yeah. Do something lucrative. Um, um, I don't know. It's probably a better question for the students that I've taught because I'm trying to think of the things that I hammer, you know, over and over again. Um, it's interesting because I I think that those students and people that I work with say. That, Calvin doesn't actually give advice. Mm. I don't want to give advice. Mm. Um, I, I say, here's what I've noticed. You know, so what I've noticed um, is that uh, it, everybody's talented. Everybody's pretty. Everybody's all those things. And I think the number one thing that I emphasize over and over have to get to a point in your career, in your thinking about your career, whether you want to be a theater artist professionally and that's all you do, or whether you are working somewhere else and you do it on the side, or whatever. I don't care, really. I mean, because for me, the level of focus is the same. I don't approach a show, you know, if I'm, if I'm working at 7-Eleven and I'm in a show, mm-hmm. I don't approach my work in that show any differently than if I'm on an equity contract to do that show, or if I'm working at Carnegie Hall. Yeah. So that's one thing. Approach everything. Do do your best work at all times. You don't have to editorialize whether you think the director sucks, whether you think it's a tiny theater and nobody's going to see it, whether you yeah. hate your role. Don't do that. Yeah. Find something within the work and then focus on that and do your best work at all times. How do you do your best work at all times? One of the things that's super important is you, get, you have to create a mindset and a life perspective where you control the things that you can And you do not attempt to control the things that you cannot. You have to understand what is within your locus of control. And so, unfortunately, a lot of times people in the arts, and I think people in general, but I think we're particularly susceptible of this because we take things so personally, we invert those two things, and we worry about the stuff over which we have no control, and we st- and, we, and because of that, that takes up so much of our energy, we do not worry about that which within, is within our locus of control. Yeah. So specifically, I always say, this: where the rubber meets the road on this is in auditions. You walk into an audition as an actor, it's, again, bringing back chorus, like, God, I hope I get it, I hope I get, I get it. it, how many people does it need, how many, you know, and, and yeah. you're, it's all about me. And I hope I'm right. And what is he thinking for mm-hmm. this role? And what does she want for this? And that. And I'm worrying about all this, right? How much control do I have over any of that? Zero, none. I cannot tell what the director wants. I am not in her head. I don't have any idea. Right. But we worry so much about that. We forget to control the things that we can. And the things that we can are preparation, discipline, focus, professionalism. Those are the things that we can control. If you focus on those to the exclusion of all that other crap that you can't control. You do your best work mm-hmm. inevitably. That's what I try to pass along because so, so many, of us out there because we also we we think if we go to an audition and we don't cast, it somehow a referendum on, on our worth as a human being, yeah. right? and it's not. Mm-hmm. So that's my thing, man. I control what you can and let the other stuff go. Awesome. And it's much it's way easier said than done. Oh, I, totally. I mean, yeah. I, I screw it up all the time. Same, yeah. 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 It's something to be something to
0: shoot for. Definitely. Well, Rich, thank you so much for being my guest on the show. It was great talking to you and getting your perspective out there. I really I, am th- thankful. This,
1: absolutely. Okay. I, again, like this, what a great privilege to be part of this series. It's really it's cool. And I, I can't wait to hear all these other voices that you keep bringing in. I think it's terrific.
0: Thank you, man. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the Ghost Lights podcast. You can follow us on iTunes as well as Podbean. I am back up there, a um, little bit of a little money issue, but we took care of it because we're good at, you know, putting our message out there. Um, anyway, please follow us, subscribe today. Um, the song that we begin and close on, as always, is War by the Hypnotic Brass Ensemble, so please download that track. Um, it's on iTunes for 99 cent. Go out there and do it. Um, thank you again, the, the man is Rich Cowden, The podcast is the Ghost Lads Podcast. We love you and uh, control what you can control.